All right, I think we can get started. Welcome, welcome all to the uh, final event of the Princeton Colloquium on Public and International Affairs. For those of you who don't know, it's hard to believe no one knows by now, but I'm Anne-Marie Slaughter, uh, the Dean of the Woodrow Wilson School. It is my pleasure to welcome you uh, to this panel. We are here to talk about the return to morality uh, in foreign affairs, a closing conversation in honor of Dick Ullman. Let me just talk for a few minutes about some of the highlights of the colloquium. It is all on the website, or almost all, for panels you missed or panels you saw and would like to see again. If you click on the website and click on the panel, you will actually get the person live talking to you. Uh, we will later have a report that will summarize the, the proceedings, uh, but it will stay up for quite some time uh, for a resource uh, and for if you talk to people and tell them they should look at it, they can click on the website. It's been a remarkable two days. Uh, we started off yesterday morning uh, with Bill Crystal uh, from the Weekly Standard and uh, Mike O'Hanlon from the Brookings Institution talking about issues of preemption and the President's national security policy and agreeing uh, to a remarkable extent. Uh, they themselves were surprised at how much uh, they agreed. Uh, but it uh, demonstrated immediately, as Bill Crystal said, we are in a new moment. We are at a time when previous uh, consensuses on uh, the bases of American foreign policy are changing, when new coalitions are forming, when old assumptions are being questioned. One of the things that came out of that panel was a proposal for a caucus of democracies. Actually, Mort Halpern, uh, to my right, uh, when he was serving in the Clinton administration, uh, worked very hard to actually establish a caucus of democracies that is, in fact, uh, operating. Yesterday, there was discussion about whether or not such a grouping should be within uh, the United Nations. Later uh, in the afternoon, we heard a discussion about nonproliferation, uh, in which, again, uh, Mort Halpern suggested uh, that we, if the United States truly wants to stop the proliferation of nuclear weapons, it must begin with its own arsenal, and it must begin by, by stating that nuclear weapons, by their inherent indiscriminate nature, meaning that they cannot be used without killing civilians as well as soldiers, are themselves evil. Another take. On We heard from uh, Dennis Ross, the uh, chief Middle East negotiator uh, under three administrations uh, who literally spent a decade shuttling uh, around the Middle East, talking about his hopes that, in fact, uh, there are reasons, even if cautious and tempered reasons, for optimism at the present moment, uh, that it may once again be possible uh, to in his view, move back toward the deal that was on the table in the Clinton administration, given the change uh, in uh, the Palestinian Authority. Uh, but above all, on our theme of morality and international relations, truth-telling will be essential. Truth-telling by one side to the other, but equally important, truth-telling by each side to their own people. This morning, 
for those of you who had the pleasure, we had a wonderful panel uh, from the humanities side uh, on the nature of good and evil. We heard about uh, evil in modern thought from Susan Neiman, evil in modern fiction, uh, and a lecture on evil in St. Augustine. One of the things that came out of that panel, aside from a wonderful discussion of Brothers Karamazov that took me back to my undergraduate days, uh, was the, the view by Susan Neiman that there's evil that we can see and resist and know uh, that we are trying to combat it, but there's also evil that comes from being part of a structure uh, that causes great damage uh, and not actively combating it. And I think one of the examples here people often offer is the sanctions that the United Nations, not the U.S., the United Nations posed on Iraq, which led to the deaths of hundreds of thousands of Iraqis, uh, not an active act of evil, but at some point possibly being part of a structure uh, causing uh, great, great damage. This afternoon, uh, we heard from Brian Hare uh, laying out the extraordinary complexity of the way in which morality has once again come to the fore in international relations uh, and the difficulty of sorting through the changing nature of the state, the changing nature of international institutions, questions of nonproliferation and human rights, and most recently, a discussion of just war uh, and morality in, in the current instance, uh, and also a panel on perspectives on the United States. Before I turn uh, to our current panel, uh, I want once again uh, to thank the people that make, made this colloquium possible. Everything from the banners uh, to the name cards to the coffee uh, to the website, uh, lots of hidden hands here. Uh, my senior special assistant, um, uh, Terry Murphy, uh, Ann Corwin, uh, who has uh, been the, for the alumni in the crowd, uh, our director of alumni uh, relations, uh, the people in our external affairs office, uh, Steve Barnes, Karen Olson, uh, and um, Dale Satin, the administrative office, buildings and grounds uh, in the Wilson School, uh, Betty Ann Bertrand, Tom Garrity, Franco Saccone, they are the people who have made this possible. Uh, and finally, Bill Burkwhite, uh, who is the person you have probably seen at my right hand uh, all the time, uh, without whom this simply wouldn't have happened. So please join in giving them, giving them a hand. I now want to turn to introducing our, our panel, and I will start with Professor Richard Ullman, uh, Dick Ullman to us, uh, in whose uh, panel, whom we honor uh, with this panel. He is the Emeritus uh, David K.E. Bruce Professor of International Affairs. Uh, he has been a prolific uh, editor and author uh, of The World and Yugoslavia's Wars, Securing Europe, and a three-volume history of Anglo-Soviet relations during the period 1917 to 21, a co-editor of Theory and Policy in International Relations, and of Western Europe and the Crisis in U.S.-Soviet Relations. He has countless articles that have appeared in academic journals and foreign affairs, foreign policy, international security, the New York Times Magazine. His writings run the gamut uh, from the pure discipline of political science uh, to public policy. 
He served as a staff member on the National Security Council and on the policy planning staff of the Office of the Secretary of Defense, as Director of Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations, as a member of the editorial board of the New York Times, and as editor of Foreign Policy. For those of us in international relations, any one of those would make a career. Uh, to combine them is absolutely extraordinary. Uh, he also served uh, in the Department of State on the policy planning staff uh, and as director of the State Department's Kosovo History Project. Those are his, that's his a part of his resume. I have to also introduce him in terms of a wonderful book, and we actually have copies, and you're <laughs> welcome to them as long as they last. I don't think we have copies for all of you, but many. Uh, it's called The Real and the Ideal. He didn't write it for this colloquium. It just happens to fit perfectly. Essays on International Relations uh, in Honor. Uh, of Richard Ullman, and it is many of the contributors to this volume have been panelists uh, over the past two days. Uh, I want to simply read the first paragraph from the foreword by Les Gelb, who is sitting next to uh, Dick Ullman. If there were a foreign policy school of common sense liberalism, its father would be Richard Ullman. It would be a school that insisted upon decency, mutual respect for rights and interests, serious efforts to resolve disputes peaceably, international institution building, and the belief in diplomacy by domestic and international example. Rights and dignity of people would sit always at the center of thought. But, and here is the twist, Almond Watcher's treasure, there would be no idealism for idealism's sake. Rights, liberties, and ideals would be tempered always by the vagaries of lawlessness and the necessities of power. I really can't find a better way to capture the complexities of the issues we've been discussing in the past two days, nor the appropriateness of having our closing conversation honor Richard Ullman. I could spend the whole rest of our time introducing the rest of our panel. I will shorten their biographies. It's a very uh, distinguished group. Uh, to uh, Dick's left, left uh, is Leslie Gelb, uh, who is known to probably all of you as the President of the Council on Foreign Relations, uh, but he had a wealth of experience uh, in foreign relations prior to coming to the Council. From 1981 to 1993, he was the diplomatic correspondent for the New York Times. Uh, in the Carter administration, he was Assistant Secretary of State for Political Military Affairs, and prior to that, Director of Policy Planning and Arms Control for International Security Affairs at the Department of Defense. Prior to that, he taught at Georgetown University, so once again, someone who combines academic, government, uh, and uh, non-governmental think tank experience. 
Uh, he has been the recipient of many, many awards. I will note here only the Pulitzer Prize, among others. <laughs> to my immediate right, uh, Mort Halperin, uh, who is the director of the Open Society Institute's Washington, D.C. office and the Open Society uh, Policy Center. He's also senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. You will note this is slightly incestuous here, uh, <laughs> the Council of Foreign Relations. Uh, and he directs the Center for Democracy and Free Markets. Uh, Mort Halperin served in the Clinton, Nixon, and Johnson administrations, uh, most recently as the director of the policy planning staff at the State Department uh, from 1998 uh, to 2001. From 1975 to 92, he directed the National Center for National Security Studies, uh, and from 1984 to 92, he directed the Washington office of the ACLU. To uh, Dick's right is Catherine Marshall. Uh, a proud alumna of the Woodrow Wilson School. Uh, Catherine Marshall works in the field of international development and has long focused uh, on issues for the world's poorest countries. She's a senior officer of the World Bank, uh, where she has worked since 1971, and is currently responsible for a broad range of issues turning around ethics, values, rights, and faith in development work, and is counselor to the current president of the World Bank uh, for uh, work on an interfaith dialogue. Uh, until September 2000, she was Director for Social Policy and Governance in East Asia and the Pacific region uh, and has also served as Country Director in the World Bank's Africa region. So she has spanned the globe uh, in working on uh, issues of, of, of poverty. To uh, my second to the right uh, is Roger Wilkins, uh, who is the Clarence J. Robinson Professor of History and American Culture at George Mason University. Roger Wilkins is the past chairman of the Pulitzer Prize Board. I don't know if that was when Wet Les won it or not. <laughs> he brings to the panel broad experience in public affairs. Uh, during the Johnson's, Johnson administration, he served as assistant attorney general. Uh, he has had a long and distinguished journalism career in addition, writing for both the New York Times and the Washington Post. And writing on the editorial page of the Washington Post, he shared a Pulitzer Prize uh, in 1972 uh, for Watergate coverage uh, with, as you would expect, uh, Woodward and Bernstein and also Herblock. Um, he has written uh, many books, uh, most recently the book Jefferson's Pillow, The Founding Fathers and the Dilemma of Black Patriotism, which won uh, the 2002 uh, NIBA Book Award for Adult Nonfiction. Finally, but not least, not remotely least, uh, on my far right, uh, only geographically, uh, is, uh, is Jan Lodel, uh, another uh, proud alumnus of the Woodrow Wilson School. Jan actually is an MPA uh, and uh, a, a uh, MSc in civil engineering. Uh, he would received a joint degree in engineering and public affairs uh, here at Princeton. Shortly after Princeton, he was the co-founder of American Management Systems, a leading computer systems and software firm. Uh, he uh, then founded Intellus, which is a software and turnkey systems firm with major clients in the healthcare and banking industries. That's this private uh, sector side. Uh, on the public sector side, he was Principal Deputy Undersecretary of Defense for Policy and Deputy for Program Analysis at the National Security Council. 
also principal advisor to the Secretary of Defense, uh, as well as the NATO and director of the NATO and General Purpose Forces Analysis Division. Uh, he has also received many uh, awards, uh, not only from universities, but also the Department of Defense Medal for Distinguished Public Service, which is the department's highest public service award. So we have a wonderful uh, array of panelists uh, to uh, help us in a closing conversation. This will really be a conversation. I'm going to pose uh, a couple of questions and ask panelists to lead off and then interrupt them uh, if need be. I'm going to warn them in advance uh, so that we can have a genuine discussion and that we then also have time uh, to turn to questions from the floor. There are many uh, different ways uh, we could cut into this subject. I'd like to start with the historical uh, questions. Uh, Les Gelb has just published an article in Foreign Affairs with Justine Rosenthal in which he says, quote, in the space of a few weeks recently, here's what happened on the international morality and values front. Madeleine Albright testified at a Bosnian, Bosnian war crimes tribunal. The State Department's chief policy planner argued that promoting democracy was one of the most important reasons to go to war with Iraq. And a top Bush administration diplomat traveled to Xinjiang to examine China's treatment of its Muslim citizens. These stories were routine and unremarkable, and that was remarkable. A former Secretary of State at a war crimes trial, democracy for Iraq, Beijing allowing a U.S. human rights official to check out its domestic policies. Such events occur regularly now with little comment, no snickering from realists, indeed with little disagreement. Now that sounds like we're not returning to morality in public and international affairs, uh, but rather entering a new era. So my first question uh, to the panel, and specifically to Les Gelb and Roger Wilkins, uh, is that right? Is this really a new uh, era? Uh, about uh, of morality, or is this just an endless circle from Woodrow Wilson through Franklin Roosevelt and back to today? Uh, I think you're, you're quite right. I was about to say we should rename the conference Turn to Morality rather than Return <laughs> to Morality, because I, I think there's hardly any morality in international relations forever, that it's a relatively new beast, and it's hard to see it because everything is dominated now by the Iraq war, by massive, decisive, uh, surgical American military power, and the seeming use of that power for the resolution of important international issues. It looks like the diplomacy is dying and military force is becoming more and more at the center of how we do things uh, abroad. And with that as the constant forefront of what's going on in the world, it's pretty hard to see what's been bubbling up, and bubbling up pretty recently. It, it, it is very recent. If you go back historically, uh, you, I have an expansive notion of morality. I include law and morality, and I know I should have my head examined for that. Uh, but yes. Uh, international lawyers were concerned about the uh, rights, of, rights of man and fair treatment issues. And they, in a, they more or less wrote alone for, for hundreds of years. You had issues of uh, 
the morality of war and just war being discussed, but they weren't discussed much by people with power. They were discussed by people at, uh, in academia. Sometimes they would spill forth into the international legal arena as with Hague or Geneva conventions. You had Woodrow Wilson uh, espousing things that no leader ever really espoused before, no leader anywhere near his consequence. And after he espoused them, most of the people in our country, for example, writing and acting on foreign affairs, used Wilsonianism as a synonym for silliness, for liberal foolery. Uh, that's how seriously those issues were taken. I think not until, at least as I try to reconstruct this, not really until the Carter-Ford presidential campaign did the issues that we would call uh, uh, the morality of foreign policy start entering into active uh, political combat and to active discussion by people in the foreign policy field mainly by uh, Jimmy Carter's attack on Henry Kissinger for a failure to tend to matters of human rights. But that was a new question on the American political scene, and it's hard to find precedent for people introducing that as a major concern. And Carter was, of course, ridiculed for, for doing this. He appointed the first Assistant Secretary of State for Human Rights Affairs, Pat Darien, and uh, the State Department took the greatest pleasure in ensuring that Pat Darien never got to attend any meeting relating to human rights. <laughs> and uh, while she struggled with some support, essentially uh, the idea of human rights was outside the policy drama. Uh, <clears throat> it wasn't really until Ronald Reagan comes on the scene that you begin to see a broadening of concern about human rights issues. Jimmy Carter and many people who worked for him essentially focused on human rights abuses by governments of the right. Uh, Ronald Reagan came in with, uh, with equal pronouncements about human rights, but focused on abuses of those rights by governments of the left. By the time the Reagan administration was finished, human rights was a part of the foreign policy agenda. And in fact, if you go back and look at some of the records of the administration, those issues got discussed more as a part of foreign policy decisions than under Jimmy Carter, who was becoming part of the allowable discussion. A big change. Then uh, the the, the next jump really comes on the democracy question. People like Mort Halperin uh, uh, was, were part of the, the resurrection of democracy as a major American political goal. And then very quickly it gets adopted both by Democrats and Republicans, conservatives and liberals. And people talk about it not simply as part of presidential speeches, or throwaway lines for secretaries of state in testimony before Congress, but it gets integrated in what you're doing in particular situations in particular countries. So I think 
what we can say now is that morality now matters in discussions of foreign policy. It generally doesn't prevail, uh, but it can't be ignored, and it's a part of the mix, a huge step forward historically. Well, I'm going to ask uh, Dick or Roger whether they agree, but I have to tell you, Les, when uh, we had our first academic meeting uh, on this conference and I talked to my, fellow, my colleagues, one of the major criticisms was why the return to morality? It should be the continuation of morality. So, uh, but either Dick or Roger, you want to jump in here? Do you agree? Well, no. <laughs> Good. <laughs> um, because this is for Dick, I really should start... Um, with South Africa 25 years or so ago when he left me high and dry all by my little brown self in the middle of apartheid South Africa. (laughs) (laughs) But... Americans have always had a, um, an, an impulse to justify some foreign policy actions um, on some grounds of human morality. Um, the Declaration of Independence was, though mainly a domestic instrument, also written to the world at large um, to justify this radical step that they were taking, um, uh, revolting from England and separating themselves from her. Um, They appeal explicitly to the decent opinion of mankind. And then they go on um, and justify their action by a bill of particulars against King George. And some of the things in that bill of particulars were human, civil rights or human rights abuses against the colonists. Then in Jefferson's draft, which didn't survive his editors in the Second Continental Congress, his main charge against the king was a profound human rights um, offense. And that was that the king forced upon these poor colonists the international slave trade and continually used his veto um, to negate their noble attempts to end the international slave trade. And in that charge, Jefferson was clearly making, because he saved it for the end, it was the longest charge he made, this was this was um, this was his piece de resistance, and he described slavery um, as succinctly and as brilliantly as one could, as uh, by saying that the king had waged cruel war against human nature itself. Surely a human rights charge. Then, if you really look at the circumstances of the Gettysburg Address. Um, Lincoln did some extraordinary things in that speech, uh, one of which was to uh, reframe the founding and uh, clean up the mistakes that the founders had made with respect to slavery. 
But he, he also did a terrific foreign policy um, pirouette. The English were thinking of coming in on the side of the South. Lincoln knew he somehow had to justify the terrible carnage this war had uh, caused, and um, saving the Union um, wasn't grand enough. It wasn't deeply moral enough. Uh, So he made the war a war for human freedom. And because he did that, because he made the war a war for, for human rights, he made it impossible for the English to come in on the side of the Confederates. And finally, kind of my favorite that precedes your time, Les, you're younger than I am, so that's probably why you don't remember these things. (laughs) President McKinley. Now I remember that one. decided that he had to um, justify um, our taking possession of the Philippines. And he made a speech to a group of Methodists in which he said, And one night late it came to me this way. I do not know how it was, but it came. One, that we could not give them the Philippine Islands, back to Spain. That would be cowardly and dishonorable. Two, that we could not turn them over to France or Germany, our commercial rivals in the Orient. That would be bad business and discreditable. Three, that we could not leave them to themselves. They were unfit for self-government, and they would soon have anarchy and misrule over there worse than Spain's was. And four, there was nothing left for us to do but take them all and to educate the Filipinos and uplift and civilize and Christianize them and by God's grace do the very best we could for them as our fellow men for whom Christ also died. And then I went to bed and went to sleep and slept soundly. (laughs) Now, less in his recent... article on morality um, in the current issue of foreign affairs says that uh, some people even now in some hands use the white man's burden um, as a justification for um, warlike activities or other thrusts of, of, of public policy, international public policy. And there is more than a whiff of that, I think, has been more than a whiff of that in the last 20 years. In Washington, I would uh, conclude this by saying that the trouble has been that uh, the white man's burden has often looked in foreign policy terms, as you looked at it in retrospect, as the white man's fantasy. And it has really turned out to be the black man's, the red man's, the brown man's, and the yellow man's burden. But um, uh, be that as it may, it seems to me that the, the, the American impulse to justify uh, our foreign policy adventures in moral terms is, uh, is uh, long, rich, and deep. Thank you.
you. Uh, both Mort and Les want to jump in, but Dick, you... Thank you. I'd like to make a personal statement, though, at, at, at the beginning. Dean Slaughter gave thanks to her staff for arranging this event. And I think all of that staff would agree that the greatest credit belongs to her, who organized every aspect of this series of interesting presentations. This is a big lecture hall, and it doesn't usually fill up, but it's full this afternoon, as it has been for other aspects of this colloquium. She promises to do something like this every year. I must say that's a demanding road on which to travel. But I thank her for making this possible. Now, still living in the shadow of the Cold War, and I re we regard that as a twofold sh shadow. One was the ideological confrontation between the Americans and the Soviet Union, the Americans and the West and the Soviet Union. The other was the military confrontation with vast military forces aggregated on both sides. Uh, in order to fight a mythical war in the center of Europe. The Soviet Union as an enemy is no longer with us, but the, the f military f f f f f f f forces that the U.S. has acquired are, are very much a part of our everyday life, as we've seen recently in the Iraq War. We have this capability, but we don't have an enemy. And it, when one is buying military forces, when one is trying to explain uh, a policy that depends upon them, it's convenient to have an external foe uh, f f to serve as a reference point. There are some who think of Islam as taking the place in that spectrum of, of causes. Uh, this is not something which the Islamic world wants. It may be, though, that, that the effect of American actions on Islamists, on the, on, on the Islamic world, will create something of the Cold War confrontation that played such a role in our affairs in the past. A few years ago, Samuel Huntington, a professor at Harvard, wrote a very influential article in Foreign Affairs called Wars of civilization, 
question mark at the end. The last thing we should hope to see happening is that question mark removed. I'll stop there for the moment. Thank you. Mort. I want to start, if I may, with two uh, personal privileges. First of all, I want to say what a great pleasure it is for me to be at this event. Dick Oman and I became colleagues more than 40 years ago. We have been friends ever since and colleagues occasionally, but from my point of view, all too infrequently. And I yield to no one in how much I have learned from him, from his wisdom, from his humanity, and from his common sense. And it's a great pleasure to share in this event. Thank you. Uh, I also want to say I make it a practice not to let the statement that the Iraqi sanctions caused civilian casualties and deaths and harm in Iraq to go unpassed. I simply believe it is false that it is Saddam Hussein was responsible for that uh, and, not, uh, and not the sanctions, and I'd be happy to address that. Uh, I want to come out on Roger's side of this debate, partly because I think there is nothing new under the sun, but also because I believe that leaders of governments, not only the United States and not only of democratic governments, always believe that they are acting morally, justly, and following some higher order. Indeed, I believe that most of the evil in the world is done precisely because people are confident that they are doing the right thing, and that there is not anything new about that at all. Uh, What I think happened is that during the Cold War, American leaders focused on what they considered the most important, both moral imperative and strategic imperative, which was to fight the Cold War and to fight the Soviet Union. And that meant that our traditional on-again, off-again, partial interest in promoting democracy and promoting human rights had to take a back seat to containing the Soviet Union. And so we supported evil dictatorships. We did not seek to promote democracy because we thought uh, that there was a higher moral imperative, not not morality, but a different kind of moral imperative which led us to having to fight that evil, the same morality that led us to align ourselves with the Soviet Union against Nazi Germany. Now, I think having said that, I think if the current period does mark a greater intensity and respectability for both human rights and democracy. But I think that is a matter of degree as compared to earlier periods rather than something fundamentally new. Thank you. I make it a practice not to let Mort Halpern go unanswered, but I'm going to hold it for a minute. <laughs> Les. Yeah, well, I'd like to defend myself against these calumnies, <laughs> these ahistorical calumnies. First, in, in, in your case, Roger, you left out the very important historical foreign policy statements made by Benjamin Harrison and Warren Harding. (laughs) They, too, lifted up their voices on behalf of the very ideals which you say have always been a part of our foreign policy. How did I forget? Uh, You know, look, the Declaration of Independence was a declaration to the world. It's also a declaration to the people in the colonies about uh, why they were rising up. It was not a statement of United States foreign policy. And if you look at the uh, uh, internal doings of George Washington and, and uh, Thomas Jefferson and the very good biographies done by Flexner and Dumas Malone, you will hardly see attention 
the very matters that uh, you think they were, were at their very hearts and in, their, in the front of their heads. It just wasn't there. Lincoln's Gettysburg Address was not a foreign policy statement. Uh, he may have had uh, some thought of deterring the British, known very well for their deep sense of morality, <laughs> by invoking human rights, uh, but I don't think that was his main concern. The main foreign policy position of the United States during the Civil War was enunciated by General Sherman in his march through Georgia. And he wrote back to his friends at the time, and there are several letters quite explicit about it, uh, justifying the ruination of that state on foreign policy grounds. And what he said was, I'm doing this on purpose. I'm doing it in the event the South might think of rising again. They can remember this, what I'm doing to them. Uh, it will stop them. And I'm also doing it for the European powers who might otherwise be tempted to come here because they'll see we'll do this to them as well. I think Americans were very pragmatic and different to these issues forever. Now, did we justify what we were doing in moral terms? Did the oratory talk about the rights of man and freedoms and democracy? Indeed, it did. But if you look at the political debates, which are very important, presidential campaigns, and the uh, internal documents, it just isn't there. It's nothing like the last 30 years. Now, you know, Mort says there's nothing new under the sun. There are new things under the sun. There are new things under the sun. Recitation of history is, uh, uh, is a, a signal proof that there are new things. People can argue about basic human motivations, being the same, but the mixes are different. The priorities are different. Uh, we do learn. We do change. And I think in this instance, uh, uh, morality has been a part of that change. You know, one only has to look back to the Second World War and the Holocaust against the Jews and the almost total indifference of America to see in that one comparison with how we reacted to similar events in more recent years, to see now that we would not stand by uh, anywhere near as glibly in the face of it. Uh, the one instance where we did stand by and watch it, Rwanda, haunts, haunts the people who made the decision to let it go. <clears throat> and it's something that, uh, uh, the, that people like us condemn as among the most serious mistakes of the Clinton administration. But I think things have changed. The balance wheel has, has gone a tick or two or more into this area, and that it's important and that it's good and that it should be strengthened. Yes, yes, terrible things are done in the name of good, but also good things are done in the name of good. I'm going to move. Fair and rational man, I will concede you two ticks. Okay. Well, on the basis of two ticks, I'm going to move the debate forward uh, to uh, the question, the next question of, of whether it's new or whether it's a continuation of a particular strain of American exceptionalism. Does morality in international affairs mean something different uh, today than it did in the past? Brian Hare told us that uh, in his career of 
trying to reconcile uh, the, the dictates of Catholic doctrine with the dictates of uh, international relations. Uh, there have been debates about human rights in the 1970s. He, he basically said morality in international affairs meant human rights, as Les said with, with Jimmy Carter and, and Pat Darien. In the 80s, uh, much more about uh, the role, tar use of nuclear weapons. Uh, he was the, he was counsel uh, to the Conference of Bishops, uh, who who held that the use of nuclear weapons uh, was not ethical. Uh, the and also a focus on targeting civilians. Um, Today, it's reasonable to ask whether morality in international affairs doesn't mean uh, instead focusing on global poverty, on the death of 60 million people uh, at current projections uh, from HIV AIDS. That's just in terms of the people who are now infected, who are now infected, who are expected to die. 60 million people. Infant mortality. Ethicist Peter Singer, also a Princeton professor, asks, what is the way of universal love and benefit? And answers, it is to regard other people's countries as our own. In other words, morality in foreign policy means regarding what happens to the citizens of other countries in the same way that we look uh, to the citizens of our own countries. And here, I actually agree with Mort Halperin uh, when he says that the direct cause of deaths from sanctions in Iraq was Saddam Hussein. I, I think that's absolutely right. But when Mary Robinson was here, as I told you, she was High Commissioner for Human Rights, uh, and she fought for human rights around the world. She said in the end that although she believed Saddam Hussein was the direct cause, at some point, all the countries who imposed sanctions, knowing that Saddam Hussein was using them to inflict that kind of damage shared in the moral responsibility. That's a different understanding of morality and foreign policy. More specifically, does morality and foreign policy mean promoting democracy? Is there an equation between those two? We very often in the United States assume there is. Democracy is a good thing. We promote democracy around the world. Woodrow Wilson, make the world safe for democracies. But is there an equation between the two? I want to call on Catherine Marshall and then Mort Halperin uh, to talk about, to start us on a discussion of those issues. Catherine, let me start with you. Uh, we often reflect on what the proverbial Martian visiting the earth uh, would think of what they see or of how historians uh, in the future will judge us. And certainly there are three uh, elements that belong very squarely on that agenda. The first is the billions of people who are in, I think, what is incontestably abject poverty conditions in which human beings should not live. Uh, the second is a more complex problem in a sense, because I don't think anyone here would argue that abject poverty is anything but wrong and evil. But the second problem is the degrees of inequality that exist, the extremes uh, of wealth by nation uh, and by groups within nations. And the third is the phenomenon of the HIV-AIDS pandemic. Uh, there is uh, certainly, I think, a, a consensus. It's reflected in the Millennium Declaration, which says, we will spare no effort to free our fellow men, women, and children from the abject and dehumanizing conditions of extreme poverty 
to which more than a billion of them are currently subjected. And from the Monterey uh, meetings and from other UN meetings, there is certainly a powerful rhetorical agreement uh, that this is, if not the central, certainly one of the two or three central challenges facing uh, humanity. But I think we also need to acknowledge as we look at the moral and the practical landscape that we have what I would call a priority pecking order uh, and that it is very frequent that these issues and the tools that are required to look at them tend to go down in the pecking order. Uh, and even though we are in a very different situation than we were historically, uh, that we can no longer argue that the poor shall always be with us, that poverty is inevitable. We know that we have the means and the resources uh, to conquer it. Uh, I think we can, we would need to look, and perhaps that can be the subject of the colloquium next year, uh, that how do we mobilize the resources that we have uh, available to humanity to translate the rhetoric uh, that we have on poverty into reality and to look at the complexities of the, uh, of the uh, problem of inequality and what is, what is a reasonable level. There's one school of thought now that's trying not only to have a poverty line, which is relatively well seen, but also talking about a greed line, which I think will never happen. But at least it's an interesting thought as to who might be above some kind of a level of greed. On the HIV-AIDS uh, issue, uh, this is not quite on the subject, though Anne-Marie mentioned it. Uh, I'm uncomfortable in any discussion of the international scene without a very strong emphasis on the HIV-AIDS issue. Uh, at a recent meeting, uh, Bono, who's one of the most defective spokesmen on this issue, said, God is on his knees to you asking you to do something on this issue, and he's telling you to get off your fat ass, was his comment. Uh, but it is, um, I think, in many respects, the single most uh, important issue uh, facing humanity, and it has a host of very complex moral as well as technical issues. Uh, during the time of the Iraq War, it's very clear that far more people died of HIV-AIDS and suffered from the disease, and many, many more contracted the disease than were affected directly or indirectly by the Iraq conflict. Uh, it is also uh, very clear that the moral ground has shifted dramatically simply within the past 18 months from a situation where one could see and argue quite tragically or sadly that treatment was simply not feasible uh, that is changing, that equation is changing so rapidly that we now need to look at the equation of 30 million people infected in Africa and the maximum 50,000 people with access to uh, antiretroviral therapy. Uh, so the, the challenge of HIV is one of the most com complex we've faced. It's the devil's disease. Uh, denial is a major issue. It's uncomfortable. Uh, it's difficult. Uh, and it will require a mobilization of technical, uh, financial, uh, leadership, uh, and civil society resources on a scale that we who've worked in the development business 
have barely begun to imagine. So I think that those are issues in any panorama of the moral issues uh, facing the United States and the international community that belong in a very central position. Thank you. Yeah, I think all I want to do is agree with that. I think that the problem of poverty and the relation between development assistance and poverty is, is in my view, intellectually and from a policy point of view, a very difficult one. We've, we've given lots of aid. It is hard to see that it has made much difference. Uh, we once again think we understand how to do it, uh, but it's not clear that we do. And the, therefore, the role that the, uh, the wealthier people in wealthier countries can play in dealing with the development issue, I think, remains very complicated. But the AIDS issue is, is from that perspective, much simpler. I think it is, it is a testament to what Wes was talking about, that many, many more people in the world care about what is happening to people, even if they're not in their own city or their own state or their own country. And many people around the world do care about this terrible pandemic. But what is most awful about it is what's been suggested. We now know how to treat it. Uh, and as President Bush said, and he has begun to give moral leadership on this issue, we'll see if that's followed by actually beginning to spend the amounts of money that need to be spent. We know how to make an enormous difference, both in treatment and prevention of AIDS. And I think uh, if, as Les says, some people look back and ask how they let Rwanda happen, I think unless we all, all of us, do something extraordinarily different than we've done before, we will all look back in 20 years with enormous remorse about having stood by and allowed uh, this pandemic to continue to grow. Do you want to say something about uh, the, uh, unless unless other panelists want to jump in on this issue? Who can disagree with what uh, they both have said? Um, I surely agree, but the idea that somehow the United States will find the moral power uh, to do something significant about AIDS in Africa or India or China when we, in fact, are not doing enough about AIDS right here in the United States and when we can't figure out or can't find it in our moral souls to um, make sure that everybody in this country gets health care, um, I must say, I, f- I, I think 20 years from now, you're right, Mort. We will look back uh, at how we missed this pandemic, but we will also look back at how we let so many Americans die in the middle of the richest country that has ever existed in the history of the world. I don't see any takers uh, on this, on what is extraordinarily uh, difficult ground, except I I would just add that uh, both are true. Uh, Brian Hare said that the post-World War II generation uh, said never again, and they knew exactly what that meant. That meant never again, never a Holocaust, never the deliberate murder of six million people. We're now looking at the death 
of 60 million people, but it's much harder to find moral clarity, not that something should be done, uh, but how exactly. We're not, there's not a direct cause. There's an indirect cause. There's not one government that you can fight. Uh, it requires mobilization of a great many people and sorting out of many uh, priorities. But in many ways, so it's a more complex moral issue. But I take from this uh, one that if we look in the lens of history, we will look back and see in a similarly condemnatory way. Let me ask more, though, to, to challenge the question, the, take on the question of whether morality in international relations is the same as promoting democracy. Uh, it is something we talk about in the same breath, but is it really the same thing? Well, I think promoting democracy is one important aspect of a moral foreign policy. Uh, I think that um, we have now reached the point where the Universal Declaration is becoming a reality. Uh, and I reject the notion that there are some countries that are not ready for democracy. Uh, it turns out that view is usually held, almost entirely held, by people not living in that country. Uh, it is very hard to find people who don't want to shape their own destiny, who want to be tortured, or who want to be told they can't speak the language they want to speak. Uh, and there is absolutely no evidence to support uh, the proposition that democracy somehow retards development. And the argument that people used to make maybe had some validity at some stage in history that delaying democracy till you had the economic development has no foundation now. The data is very clear uh, that Democrat state, democratic states do as well as non-democratic states. What I think has to change is the total gap between rhetoric and policy on the part of the United States and the international financial institutions which we dominate in not expressing a preference for democracy. In fact, the data shows that non-democratic countries get more bilateral assistance and more multilateral assistance than democratic countries. That's something that's easy to change, it's something that we ought to change, and I think we uh, we have no longer any justification. We don't have the Soviet Union. Uh, we don't have uh, the shibboleths about development uh, to say that the promotion of democracy should not be uh, the highest priority of American foreign policy. It is also consistent, I believe, with our security and our economic interests, uh, as well as our morality. You want to challenge? Yeah. Uh, I want to challenge him, too. All right. You do first. Okay. So what if promoting democracy in Iraq results in theocracy. If we had elections tomorrow, we would have a theocratic state, hardly one uh, that would promote human rights of many, uh, and nor uh, the kind of free expression, uh, all the things we mean uh, by democracy. What then? I just don't accept that. I mean, I think it is, an, it is a peculiarly American view that one element of democracy is the separation of church and state. We believe it passionately, uh, but it is not the case in the United Kingdom. It is not the case in Israel. It is not the case in Turkey. Uh, the question is to, is to help uh, citizens of Muslim states to, uh, to find the right relationship between religion and the rights of individuals, including those individuals who are not members of that religion. Uh, Turkey is, I think, finally on the path to doing it after many false thoughts. Um, but the fact that the people of Iraq and I think the people of Iran may choose 
to have a state in which religion is an official part of the state does not mean that it cannot be a democratic state and does not mean it cannot be a state which tolerates people who do not share those religious views. And I think if we continue to talk, as the Secretary of Defense did, and suggest that we know better and that we, our form of democracy, uh, which involves the separation of church and states, is the only one, that we're going to get ourselves in a war with a very large part of the of the world's population. It happens that a majority of the world's Muslims already live in democratic states, and I believe have demonstrated an ability to, to try to deal with that. They're very hard issues, but they're not incompatible. Les, do you want to? Yeah, I'm also in favor of democracy. I think the evidence suggests that the American people are not ready for it. (laughs) They also don't get it, so don't worry. You see, so it's hard sometimes for other people to get it if we don't get it. Uh, I, I make distinctions between democracy and the process of democratization. Uh, it's it is important to me uh, because I think there are a lot of a lot of people who use Mort's goodwill uh, uh, in order to take democracy away. It looked 10, 15 years ago as if it were this third wave in the world that uh, a lot of nations were ready to become something we would call democracies. I really think that was premature. And I think we pushed too hard on the forms of democracy and not hard enough on the substance of democracy. This is not true of Mort Halperin, by the by. But I think it was true of a lot of the advocates. And it does make a difference, Mort, uh, whether you are a believer in the, uh, in the union of church and state and you're a, uh, an Iranian cleric on the one side, as opposed to the Archbishop of Canterbury. The Archbishop of Canterbury is perfectly content to allow a Jew or two and a Catholic to have power and say his peace. Uh, but that's not going to be true for the, uh, the mullahs in Iran. And it may not be true, we don't know yet, for the mullahs in Iraq. Uh, in situations of, of genuine anarchy, um, uh, verging on... Uh, uh, civil violence, where there's no real political organization, rule of law, all the substance of democracy. I think the historical record shows that the bad guys win elections. Almost always. Kerensky loses, the bad guys win. That's the story over and again. And uh, I, I'm less concerned about elections and the trappings of democracy and more concerned about promoting the rule of law, freedom of the press, uh, in the context of local elections that may not um, entirely fit our sense of democratic norms. It was only, heavens, it was only 40 years ago, Mayor Daley was the Democratic mayor of Chicago. Uh, and, you know, you remember the story about... Yeah, remember the story about uh, Hitler, Mussolini, and Mayor, mayor Daley being stranded on a lifeboat, just the three of them. And given their experience in coming to power, they decided there had to be a leader and he had to be chosen by democratic elections, free secret ballot. So they take a ballot, and uh, Mayor Daly is charged with reading the ballot. This is one vote for Hitler, 
One vote for Mussolini, 325 votes. (laughs) You know, I think that's what will happen. I think the process of democratization is very important for us to push. And I don't say that because of the superiority of American democracy. Um, uh, That isn't uh, where my head or heart are. But it took us at least 200 years to reach our current state of perfection. (laughs) And I think we ought to give others the time and help them along with the processes of doing the same. Well, I have one last question before opening the floor. Uh, I want to turn us back to uh, the use of force, the most immediate uh, issue uh, in the past month uh, that has raised questions of morality in international relations. We started yesterday with a panel uh, concerning the preemption doctrine, which some people think of as the prevention uh, doctrine. In other words, the premise that uh, in this world uh, we need to be able to use force uh, before we are attacked, uh, indeed before arguably uh, before there's even an imminent threat of attack, simply the capability of another state or group uh, to inflict uh, possibly devastating uh, harm on us. Uh, I want to ask about the morality of a doctrine uh, of preemption, even uh, recognizing a cost-benefit analysis that says a preemptive strike uh, could save the lives of possibly millions of people if you think that that there's a possibility of a weapon of mass destruction being used against you by a state uh, or a terrorist. or more broadly still, using the threat of force uh, after Iraq, the way we're using the threat of force uh, in Syria and uh, arguably possibly even in North Korea uh, to try to assure our security. I'm going to ask Jan Lodel uh, to lead us off and then uh, panel to respond, and we'll open it to the floor. Well, I think it's important to remember that we've always accepted as not only morally uh, uh, morally correct, but in some cases imperative, uh, the first use of force. We've talked about it with regard to Rwanda today and how uh, we all regret that we did not uh, use force there when we were not threatened. So genocide is a case. Um, and uh, we, we've also uh, for a long time accepted preemption if you're about to be attacked. So the question is, how far beyond that do you go? How serious does a human's, human rights violation have to be uh, does it have to go to the level of genocide before it justifies preemptive use? Um, and the other part of the question is, what kind of threat of imminent attack justifies uh, first use and preemptive use? Um, this was uh, largely the rationale uh, for uh, the Iraq war at one point. The administration's rationale changed at different points in time, that they uh, – they represented a threat of weapons of mass destruction. Later, it uh, it moved to, I think, a more serious point, which was that Iraq had refused to live up to the UN resolutions that required them to disarm. Now, uh, whether we had to have the war at that point in time uh, would take a long discussion. But I would like to uh, just point out how that issue is um, a good um, example of where I think the world is headed. And that is, 
um, the uh, increasing challenge we face from weapons of mass destruction of new types. It's not the Cold War challenge where we were trying to deter a war uh, from the Soviet Union. We knew, knew where the threat was, uh, we knew what their weapons were, and we knew what type of weapons they were. We still have some of that challenge left to us, and we have big uh, effort left that we need to undertake to uh, deal with this residual Cold War-type nuclear weapon challenge, and we've talked about that in the last couple of days. But we also have new challenges. We have the challenge particularly of biological weapons, which is very much not understood by the public yet how fast that's coming on us. I'll give a little simple example. Let's say SARS turns out to be really bad, and we can't figure out how to stop it, and it gets transmitted really easily. Um, our wonderful biotechnology community in the world has published the genetic code of SARS already on the Internet. Uh, it turns out that it's not very hard to make SARS from that information and some fairly simple technology. Uh, could you do it in a year or two years or five years? Not clear. Uh, the polio virus was made from scratch, starting with information and off-the-shelf biotech uh, material recently. Uh, SARS could probably be made a little bit easier than polio, and other new things can be made pretty rapidly. So at what point is it okay for us to threaten the use of force against states which refuse to go along with the obligation that all states have now accepted in the Biological Weapons Convention to make sure that these kind of things don't happen. We have a huge challenge left just to build a regime, if you will, uh, to control uh, this potential threat. But somewhere in that regime is likely to be uh, a threat of use of force and preemptive use of force against uh, either states uh, or perhaps entities inside of states who have refused to go along with a regime uh, that's necessary to prohibit uh, this kind of threat from uh, expanding. So I think there are many challenges left to us as we try to adapt the traditional just war doctrines, the traditional use of force doctrines to a very new technology, uh, very, very new technological environment that we face. And it's the combination of the biotechnology, the information technology, and what we've now seen after September 11th, which is the willingness to use these kinds of capabilities to use uh, weapons against civilians uh, and not, uh, uh, not necessarily even state actors to do this. All of this adds up to a new mix and uh, a big challenge. I think that we should very quickly move away from the idea of preemption uh, as a way to solve our more traditional foreign policy problems and to uh, reduce uh, our military challenges in a traditional sense. Uh, that doesn't make much sense and uh, would require a lot of elaboration. But there are these areas in which uh, use of force first, uh, if we don't do it, uh, just as we've said about Rwanda, we're going to be sorry uh, 20 years from now. Thank you. More. Yeah, I think my view that the doctrine of preemption, of preemptive war is not immoral per se, but I think the doctrine as put forward by the Bush administration is extraordinarily dangerous because I believe that our security lies in strengthening the efforts 
to have to enforce universal norms that apply to all countries, and that our effort to adopt universal norms that apply to everybody but the United States is ultimately unsuccessful and extraordinarily dangerous. When the President laid out his constantly shifting arguments about why we were going to attack Iraq, I was sure we were going to attack Pakistan, because, in fact, uh, they have followed the things that he talked about much more and much more dangerously. And, of course, the Indians continue to ask us why it is not okay for them to attack Pakistan, given that we went halfway around the world to attack Iraq for building weapons of mass destruction, uh, for supporting terrorism, uh, things that the Pakistanis are doing and doing to, to the Indians. So I think uh, the danger here is that we have not expounded and sent to enforce universal rules, universal rules which will enable us to get support when we need to use military force, whether it's to deal with a biological threat or deal with genocide, whether it occurs in Bosnia or Rwanda, uh, and to use military force for other purposes, but it has to be consistent with articulated rules that we are willing to apply to ourselves and to everyone else in the same way. So let me open the floor. Uh, I will ask you to wait uh, until the microphone uh, is brought to you. Uh, we're actually being taped by the McNeil Lehrer by the People Project. I welcome all of you uh, and invite you to ask questions as well. This is a uh, project of McNeil Lehrer on America in the world uh, to engage Americans across the country uh, in foreign policy. So let me start here uh, with the person right there. Yeah, right there. Thank you. Yes. Wait, wait until you have the microphone. No, wait a minute. <laughs> Hold on one second. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, okay, there you go. Following on the last oh boy, on, on the last comment, uh, it seems to me that the European community or the uh, EC is an amazing organization because here we have in the heart of Europe uh, a number of countries that have created uh, basically a zone of peace. I mean, they've given up some degree of sovereignty. So the question is, uh, how do we accomplish this more on, an, uh, on a more international scene? Uh, how do we get the U.N., for example? How do we change the U.N.? How do we alter it? How do we modify its institutions, perhaps, so that it uh, achieves uh, some of these goals? Hopefully, we don't have to wait for the 2,000 years that the EC members waited, during which they, you know, murdered each other incessantly. So how do we change the U.N. to accomplish these goals? <laughs> Thank you. Who wants to take a crack at that? Oh, <laughs> you, you've stumped them. I, I will make a brief comment in that I think that the, the, we should not count on being able to solve the problem by fixing the U.N. We should work on trying to fix the U.N., but we should assume that we're going to continue to have a system of sovereign states and that the states are going to retain the rights to act independently and outside the U.N., and that, furthermore, there will be situations in which the U.N. will not act quickly enough. 
So that doesn't really answer your question, but uh, uh, and there are many things we can do to reform and improve the UN. Uh, we haven't been doing so well in the last few months in that respect. We've been going the wrong direction, but uh, uh, but it will take more than just the UN. You want to have a word from Mike Doyle on this on, on this subject? Uh, do we have? No. Would you Mike like Doyle? Sure. Where is Michael Doyle? Against the wall. We're going to have a. Michael Doyle, you've been called on by Professor Ullman. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, Michael, let me just uh, say, Michael Doyle uh, has just uh, finished a stint uh, as Assistant Secretary General in the United Nations, so he is particularly well qualified to address this question. Thank you, Anne-Marie. Um, the question you pose, of course, is a, is a difficult one. It, it, sort of, it misconceives the, the UN, I think. Uh, there are embodied in the UN a series of ideals that uh, would lead us to believe that someday it might be the institutional vehicle of a zone of peace. But in the meantime, the, the UN was designed to deal with uh, normal states. And so the states on the Security Council, the powerful, insisted upon a veto not because they were so wise or so good, but simply because they were so dangerous that they thought they could never impose upon each other law and order. And to become a member of the United Nations, all you need to do is to assert and have nobody successfully challenge you that you're peace-loving. And that's a very thin standard that included the founders, including Joseph Stalin and others. So th this, this is an institution designed not, not, not to create uh, an ultimate ideal order, though it has within it that potential someday, somewhere. It's designed to produce a dialogue so that states will at least talk to each other. That's number one. And number two, under certain very rare circumstances where the international community is united, it will provide that common collective legitimation to do the kind of things that we wouldn't trust any individual state to do on its own. Much more modest objectives, I think. Thank you. Somebody, yeah. Do you want to? <laughs> Less, um, and then more. I think the United Nations is a building on 43rd Street uh, populated by... Uh, a lot of international bureaucrats, uh, some of whom are very able and dedicated, others uh, are, are, are in a job corps, lifetime job corps. There are some agencies of the UN that do very good work, like UNESCO, um, and they're very important, and they exist sort of apart from um, the building on 43rd Street. Uh, building on 43rd Street where involves the issues we're talking about is not about the United Nations as a separate institution. United Nations is a building that houses uh, major power politics. And almost everything we complain about or occasionally praise in the United Nations is a result of major power politics. Uh, when the UN is at loggerheads, it's not because the UN is at loggerheads, it's because the major powers are. And they usually at loggerheads over their own interests and hypocrisies. Iraq was a perfect example of this. And it hurt the UN uh, enormously, profoundly. You know, here uh, you had uh, nation after nation arising, rising up to condemn what the United States was proposing to do. And uh, hardly any of them ever having raised their voices over the years to condemn what Saddam was doing to his own people. It was startling. 
It was startling, mainly the Europeans and the Arabs, the silence about Saddam and the noise about us. Uh, secondly, you had the, the question of um, the insistence of the United States over the years at the UN that the, the economic sanctions against Iraq be kept on. And the Europeans saying, you can't keep them on because it's the Iraqi people who are suffering as a result of these sanctions, not the regime. And now, now that the money really can flow to the Iraqi people, where there's little doubt there's a better chance of it flowing in that direction, the Europeans are saying, well, you've got to keep the economic sanctions on because the issue is who's going to control the funds. Where was the, where's the concern now for the Iraqi people? But it's about major power politics. And I don't think the UN will begin to deal with the kinds of problems that it really is uniquely positioned to do until there is uh, uh, less hypocrisy in the dealings among major powers. I mean, that's the root of the problem. I wish we had started with that statement because uh, I've seldom heard something from Les that I more profoundly disagree with uh, than, those, than those comments. Um, I think the first Bush administration recognized that the U.N. was something more than a building, that the U.N. Security Council, when the major powers could cooperate, actually was a body that could make rules which said. were binding. When they could cooperate. Right. But we began the process of trying to get them to cooperate. Uh, and when they did, we had persuaded most of the rest of the world that, in fact, those rules were binding on them. So that many countries, for example, paid an enormous economic price to support the sanctions against Serbia, to support the sanctions against Iraq because they believed that they were, when the Security Council invoked its authority under Chapter 7, those were rules that countries were obliged to obey under international law. Uh, and similarly, when the first Persian Gulf War occurred, states cooperated, uh, not the 48 states in the coalition, but real states with real power cooperated in that war, many of them because they thought they had a legal obligation to do so because the Security Council had enacted under Chapter 7. This administration has moved away from that. It refused the Chapter 7 resolution after September 11th to authorize our invasion of Afghanistan, which the Security Council was ready to give. And it acted in the Iraqi war without trying to justify its actions consistent with the U.N. Security Council. And in my view, the fight about lifting sanctions is exactly the opposite. It is a fight between the United States' assertion that because it won the war, it will decide who good Iraqis are, what democracy in Iraq is, and therefore control the money from the oil until it finds Iraqis that it wants to trust. And what the Security Council, the rest of the members of the Security Council and the Secretary General are saying is that the place to determine the future of Iraq is in the Security Council, where if the United States is prepared to deal in a reasonable way, I believe a consensus could in fact be reached so that the oil revenues are in fact put at the service of a transition to uh, an independent democratic Iraqi government. 
Well, I disagree. No, you've got to. We've got to. I disagree strongly with parts of that too. So we'll 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 tag team at dinner. But I'm going to hold. We 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 started late, uh, and I'm going to give us ten more minutes. uh, But there are a couple of questioners. I'm going to call on uh, a couple people. I see over there uh, to collect their questions, and then I'll let people on the panel respond and and, and, as part of a closing uh, round. Professor Reinhardt had a question initially. Hi. Uh, Yes, I am. I must say I am unpersuaded by Mr. Gelb's argument that there is a new moral clarity in American foreign policy. I'd like him to tell me what seminal event has there been that I should be persuaded uh, by that. After all, I could, th- this war struck me as an enterprise in search of a justification. Then it was weapons of mass destruction. Then it was violation of UN resolution. Finally, some marketeer stumbled on another idea. I mean, you can sell cereal that way, too. Uh, <clears throat> it, it's, I could make the case for this war on purely realistic grounds with a good benefit cost, purely economic uh, ground you could make a case if you then mix in American politics and look at the redistribution of income that war represents within the United States they are powerfully connected political groups who are going to be multi-zillionaires of this war and you, you uh, know that I think uh, moral clarity or moral uh, considerations would be sort of number eight of reasons that I would put down. Could you persuade me or try to persuade me, or is it hopeless? <laughs> Hold the response there. Uh, sir, you, you were standing before. You had a question. You'll just wait till the microphone. Thank you. Uh, I'd like to direct my question to you, Dean Slaughter. My name is Ralph Woodward. I'm a class of 1951 at uh, Princeton University. And before I ask my question, I should reveal my biases. From my undergraduate days, I've been a leftward-leaning liberal Democrat. Uh, I want to cast a vote for uh, Morton Halperin's view, I think I correctly express it, that a great deal of evil has been done in the world in the name of moral certainty. The title of this Colloquium has been a world of good and evil, the return to morality in international affairs. My feeling is that a return to morality in international affairs is probably what we have most to fear. And I wonder if the next colloquium on public and international affairs, if you would consider the possibility that it be uh, a colloquium titled A World of Good and Evil, a world of good and evil uh, in the conduct of foreign affairs, a a turn to humility, self-doubt, and self-restraint. Thank you. Uh, There was a question, yes, there in the back, Steve, the... uh, well, there, and we'll pass it across the row, and then we'll go to Brady Kiesling, and we'll be Thank done. You. Go ahead. Thank you. Um, we're standing currently in the wealthiest state, in the wealthiest country of all time, on the world, in the world. And I'm wondering how naive is it to think of us as the remaining superpower in the world with this mantle of responsibility to initiate a program of a series of Marshall Plans, maybe many Marshall Plans, scaled to the need but 
avoid the prerequisite that we've had in the past of the war. So what are the major impediments for America, the remaining superpower, the wealthiest nation in the world, for conducting its foreign affairs in that regard? Thank you. And so right here along the row. Uh, also, I think with that, we need to maybe look at it, and I'd like to hear your perspective on, and it's idea that we must have a collective self-interest in order to act. Do we need to subjugate, or have we subjugated uh, from this Iraq experience when the U.S. can act in its own self-interest? Uh, the last question uh, here uh, goes to Brady Kiesling, who was our uh, opening keynote yesterday morning. It seems only appropriate uh, to let him ask the final question. Okay. Uh, thank you very much, Dean Slaughter. I'm afraid I'm sort of going to foul my own nest here. <clears throat> I'll try to be a little provocative. Um, normally, when we talk about policy, <clears throat> we talk about the allocation of scarce resources. I assume this is also true with foreign policy, though it hasn't been an issue for any of the discussions so far today. Um, would a moral foreign policy, in fact, allocate America's scarce resources differently. Uh, let me explain that um, the United States has a defense budget hugely out of proportion to the defense budget of any other country in the world, and one could easily argue, even after 9-11, that is hugely out of proportion to the genuine threats that we face, or at least that it is expended in ways that are not <coughs> Uh, appropriate to the threats that we currently face. So is there room for a more moral allocation of America's resources, for example, on things like AIDS, develop, world development, things of that sort? Um, is it the job of um, the foreign policy community to promote such a more moral allocation of resources? And as a sort of provocative question, um, is it a hindrance to a better allocation of foreign policy resources, the fact that so much of the foreign policy community thrives on the crumbs that fall from the table of the Defense Department budget? And is there a way that um, other sources can be found? Thank you. I'm going to move down the row. You can take your pick. You, certainly not everyone should try to answer every question. <laughs> Dan, let's start with you. Maybe I'll start with the defense budget question. Um, I, I don't want to sound uh, apologetic for the uh, Rumsfeld defense budget, with which I have many, many problems. But the reality is that in an extreme case, maybe there's $100 billion a year to be played with here. That's a lot of money, but it's a lot less than the tax cut. So there's a lot of other issues here that uh, I think uh, have to be dealt with. Uh, more, more than likely... Uh, What's at issue in the defense budget is, is more like 30 or 40 billion a year. So I don't think it can solve, it can't really fund those other issues. Uh, you have to do something about the broader fiscal policy of the country in order to uh, deal with the rest of those issues. Thank you. Catherine. Uh, I'm going to take my life in my hands and disagree with Jan, uh, because I think that the, in fact, when you look at it from the perspective of the development agenda and the uh, development issues, we're talking about comparisons uh, where, uh, that pale 
against the uh, issues of the of the defense budget, and we're constantly using what would it cost to do a massive vaccination campaign. Uh, and it's not only the United States. Uh, the expenditures on pet food in Norway uh, certainly exceed the health budget for the country of Chad, and the two dollars a day subsidy to cows in the European Union. Uh, the comparison between an aircraft carrier uh, and uh, education costs, that we, we really do need to keep our eyes on the imperatives for a safe uh, and a just world of addressing uh, these issues of development. And the, there is no question that the resources are there. Uh, there is a great deal that we've learned. Uh, there is a host of lessons that have come out of 50-plus years of working in the development field, uh, but there are positive lessons as well as negative lessons, and we should keep in mind whenever we're addressing issues of priorities, uh, the absolute imperatives of dealing with uh, the problems both of the very poor uh, and the problems of the relative inequality which gives rise to the anger and the sense of injustice uh, that we've seen uh, to our to our cost uh, over the past years. Dick. I think this has been a very interesting discussion. We haven't really come to terms. I'm sorry. We haven't really come to terms with what we mean by morality in international affairs. That's perhaps expected. There would be a multitude of definitions among the members of this table. One final observation, Lord Halperin said that he and I taught together at Harvard. That indeed was true. During the fall of 1962, during the Cuban Missile Crisis, we taught the course in American foreign policy. The section man or grader in that course was none other than our colleague, Dr. Gell. <laughs> I love coming here to get disagreed with. (laughs) Made my weekend, Uh, and I'm uh, I'm more than happy in the fall to come back for a day, an afternoon, whatever, and engage with some of the people in this room about the important points they raise. But just very briefly, and too brief for the importance of the questions you raise. One. Try to convince me that there's any more interest in morality today than before. Well, I can suggest first that you read my article, which is. <laughs> can all of us do is, that? Which is, and you, or you can get the videotape. <laughs> but it's, it, it really is unimaginable for me to think of the United States having gotten involved in a Bosnia or a Kosovo or a Somalia for when we did. Uh, before the last uh, 20, 30 years. I think there is a real change. And yes, I do believe uh, that a number of the people who have made the decision to go into Iraq did so uh, not on fake moral grounds, but on real moral grounds. You may disagree with that. You may think it's dangerous, but I think it was in their minds and in their hearts. Uh, Which leads me to the second set of issues that were raised, you know, why don't we return to that great era of self-restraint where there was no concern about morality? 
I find that statement grotesque, frankly, absolutely grotesque. Uh, I, I don't think that the, uh, the past was, uh, 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 the, if you describe it as self-restraint, was better than the period that we're moving into now. I think the past was almost no concern for these issues. And uh, people did plenty of damage without justifying them in terms of, um, uh, of the kind of pragmatic uh, moral concerns that I'm enunciating here, or I think are becoming a matter of uh, uh, becoming a part of the foreign policy debate within government and within our, our politics. Those things are good. It's good we got into Bosnia and Kosovo. We've made them better and safer places. And we stopped what I've considered to be genocide. It's good that we've got enough concern in this country to get involved in the international uh, effort against AIDS. It would have been hard for me to imagine anything comparable in the past. I think the self-restraint argument is far better directed at the uh, theologians of democracy who would transform the world well, well before uh, it's ready for that transformation, defy and deny local history and customs and culture. And it's better directed at the theocrats who have no self-restraint whatsoever. Roger Wilkins. Well, just so we won't feel abused, I want to say that I agree with at least three things that Les just said. <laughs> Bosnia, Kosovo, and AIDS. But I want to try to respond to your question about a Marshall Plan and your observation about the defense budget. Um, but I want to do it in a different way. Somebody, Les, I guess, said that the people who went to war uh, really went with, or many of them at least, with, with, with good motives. And um, I listened to the president um, at times try to justify the war um, on democratic ethical grounds that all Americans would agree with. Um, I heard Colin Powell say that uh, we went to this we went into this war um, for good American values. And I believe that, that, that he was expressing uh, a sincere view when he said it. I disagree with them and with their conclusion. But the thing that strikes me about our um, enthusiasm for spreading democracy around the world and thinking we'll light this torch of democracy in Iraq and it'll just bring like a contagion throughout the Middle East is we didn't have a good, robust, democratic debate in this country about going to the war. And frankly, though I share the political in, in, uh, inclinations of the gentleman from the class of 51, um, I don't really blame it so much on the president and his party. I really blame it on the Democrats 
who, and I think, really, if you live in a society where you have the freedoms that we have, and the world is as dangerous as Jan is telling us it is, which I completely believe, that is really pretty immoral for people for, with public voices to refuse to take a leadership when it's risky to them, but enormously important to the country. Bravo. And finally, we've been talking a lot about the, 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 the international community, the, the foreign policy community. I don't consider myself a part of that community, but I think it is incumbent on that community to do everything it can to figure out how to extend the reach of the debate around the country so Americans really can get engaged in fundamental ways and make the kinds of choices that your questions suggested. Because I do think that there is a terrible skewing of the way we spend our money in this country, and the people of the United States are not having a huge debate about it, and I think we need to have it. I agree with that. I want to suggest that we all go home and read Reinhold Niebuhr, because I think we've forgotten the very important lessons, including my friend Les Gelb has forgotten the very important lessons that, uh, that Niebuhr tried to teach us. I, I would say that I agree with Les that restraint is not what we need in American foreign policy, but I think all the other adjectives in your question uh, were right. I think the problem with the Bush administration, from my point of view, is not that there's, that there's not enough restraint. I think it is that the action is directed in the wrong ways and based on the wrong principles. I think that humility and an understanding that problems are inherently difficult and uncertain is lacking. I think that every time the president says you're either for us or against us, he sets up a false dichotomy which is incompatible with our own democracy and incompatible with building the kind of world that we need to build, which is not one in which everybody obeys us because they're afraid that Rumsfeld's troops are going to land it, but that people work with us because they agree with us. And that requires recognizing that what we see is right or wrong may be different than what others see is right or wrong. I also think that we need to get rid of American exceptionalism, of the notion that the rules apply to everybody else but us, and we need to work actively without restraint to build a world in which there are rules that do, in fact, govern the behavior of countries that are enforced and that recognize the common humanity of everybody on this globe and not exercise any restraint about that. I also have to say that I don't see this group of people pushing democracy on others that Les has been uh, talking about. I'm a little confused about whether he thinks it's good that democracy is being promoted. And I have to say, I have not yet gotten over being linked with Paul Wolfowitz as a pair here. But um, whether it's good or bad, uh, but I don't see it. That is, I do not see the instances where we or anybody else has gone into a country and said, you must have an election now. And the people in the country said, no, no, we don't want an election. In fact, 
when you clear away dictatorships, you get people wanting elections. Now, those elections are often complicated and difficult, but I think our job is to do what the community of democracies has tried to do, which is bring countries together where people have chosen the path of democracy and try to help them stay on that path, recognizing that it is extraordinarily difficult to do so. And other countries will choose the path of democracy uh, when they clear away their own dictatorships. We do not need, in my view, nor do I think we have been in the business of trying to force people to have democracy when they do not want it. I think it, in fact, is a universal aspiration and our role is to help people as they choose that path to stay on that path and to not do what we've often done in the past, which is to get them off the path by supporting people who want to usurp uh, the transition to democracy. So, so let me close uh, by turning to our topic. A world of good and evil, question mark, and good and evil is in quotations. The return to morality in international affairs. As I said uh, in my opening remarks yesterday, uh, when I put this uh, to my uh, colleagues, many people challenged every single word in the title. Uh, one was uh, many people thought we should talk about moralism rather than morality, that there was no uh, morality in international affairs. But I'm going to do something very uncharacteristic for an academic uh, and answer my own, or give you my own view uh, of how I think about this particular question. A world of good and evil, question mark? There is good and evil in the world, from my point of view, and I think a sound foreign policy should recognize evil where we see it and try to fight it. The return to morality in international affairs, that to me is still an extremely open question and exactly on the point uh, that you raised. Accepting, as I do, that there is good and evil in the world and that we can fight evil and that we should. And evil is a loaded term, and we could, we could talk about genocide or human rights abuses or use uh, uh, a term that is perhaps uh, more comfortable uh, for some of us. But it is still, uh, I think, relevant to ask the question whether talking about the world in terms of good and evil, as if we, the United States, know what is good and what is evil, may well undermine the pursuit of the very goals I seek, I wish us to achieve. So for my own answer, yes, I think there's evil. Yes, I think we should fight it. But only, as Michael Doyle said, through a process of multilateral decision. Just as in the United States, we understand that we need a government of checks and of balances uh, to make sure that no one person or group of people's view of what is right prevails, so internationally do we need to subject our own judgments to the judgments of other nations, our allies, our friends, even our enemies. We need to be able to persuade the world uh, that, in fact, what we see is evil is evil. In some cases, we can certainly do that. Genocide in Rwanda, Saddam Hussein himself. Other questions are much more complicated. So my own view uh, is a mix uh, of these things, uh, and I ultimately come out on the need to go back to the United Nations and to reform it. But let me just say in closing, what I take away from this colloquium uh, is that we are in a very 
important time, in a new time, in a time when people who long thought they agreed with each other find that they disagree, uh, and they agree on some things and disagree on others, in which they are struggling uh, to answer questions that are of enormous practical and political and spiritual significance for who we are as a people and for the kind of world we want to live in. What I hope all of you take away from this colloquium are more questions than answers, but a sense of determination to engage yourself in those questions and to continue in a collective national debate. Thank you very much.